Thank you for downloading Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode there are some depictions of war and torture. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early lives to achieve great success. Our guest today is a best-selling author and was one of the Army's most highly decorated soldiers. Andy McNabb served in the armed forces for 18 years, including 10 years in the SAS, working on covert and overt special operations worldwide and was awarded both a Distinguished Conduct Medal and the Military Medal. After leaving the SAS in 1993, he became a writer and his account of a patrol he commanded during the first Gulf War, Bravo 2-0, is the highest selling war book of all time and he lectures security and intelligence agencies in the UK and the US as well as working as an advisor on Hollywood films including Black Hawk Down. But he was abandoned by his parents at birth and found in a Harrods carrier bag on the steps of a hospital in London. And he didn't read his first book until he was 16. The most important thing you have is knowledge, he says. If I can do it, anyone can. Andy McNabb, thank you for joining us. No, thank you. You must have been in your element during lockdown, weren't you, with all your SAS survival skills? Do you know, I had a great time. The, 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 the first one actually got caught in the Middle East, in Doha, in Qatar. It was fantastic. I, you know, it's, I, you know, if people know the place, it's, it's great. Sun was out, all good. I was, I was quite spoiled on that. And then on the second one, it was uh, enjoyed it at home. It was fantastic, yeah. So have you been going on runs and lifting weights, or is it all, have you got into knitting and baking banana I've bread? Got into, and... No, baking banana, <laughs> literally baking banana bread and um, Yorkshire pudding. Oh, really? So we used to do the sort of Aunt Bessie things and all like that. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And everybody gets Yorkshire puddings whether they like it or not. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think the pandemic is a bit like war? Do you think those military comparisons are actually ridiculous? I think, you know, I, I think it's just a, 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 the, the part of warfare, if you like, is adapting to the circumstances, whether it's, you know, an infantry soldier where you're constantly trying to stop being wet, cold and hungry, where it's just a, it, it's the same sort of emotion, different context. Um, and people are trying different thing well you know tried baking and tried you know you i had a um a mohegan a pink mohegan haircut yeah. and uh which went all a bit wrong because it was i thought it was that washing wash out <laughs> but it was permanent so it was like ha 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 you know like say so just give it a go yeah it was good and do you think the public's gone soft are there too many snowflakes or does it do you actually think it's made us more resilient is it more yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm a bit sort of, you know, the snowflake thing. I'm a bit sort of, uh, 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 you know, not with it really. I think that look, every generation, you know, a new generation, the older generation, well, they're not as tough as us. They were, you know, it happens in the army. Oh, it's no good now. It's not like when we were in. You know, and this generation now will be saying the same about the next one. You know, I don't think that people do adapt really successfully. And it, well, that's why we're quite sort of successful as a species, isn't we? You know, from sort of, you know, running around with caves, brontosaurus trying to kill us, to where we are now. We're, we're pretty successful because we can adapt. But are you frightened of anything, though? Not in a bizarre way. It, it's not as if it, it's or, or a sort of, you know, a flippant way of, of, of saying no. It, the, the fact is I've got a um, uh, part of the brain called the amygdala, for me, doesn't work. And that gives you fight or flight. So I don't sort of uh, react in that fight or flight um, sense. Um, so, you know, that's why I've been decorated in the military, because they say, well, there's a job on. I go, oh, OK, I'll do that. 
um, because it doesn't. It, there's so not the fear, fear. No, nor empathy. Or you know, so the downside mm. is things like empathy and all those sort of uh, uh, sort of you know, emotions because of this thing called the amygdala doesn't work. I only discovered about seven years ago. Uh, that's the reason why yeah, through some experiments at, at uh, University um, Oxford, why people like myself sort of get on and. And and whether it's a successful career in the military or getting out and getting involved, obviously in 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 in, in writing books and film and all that sort of stuff. And you've never really been photographed openly, and you always use a fake name. Yeah. Are you scared of being killed, or do no, you think it, anyone's out to get you, or yeah, is it, it just habit now? Well, it, it's it's the last serious death that was about three. Well, yeah, about three Octobers ago. So it's really been sensible. Um, what uh, happened? Well, but, but, uh, but at that time, the the, um, uh, uh, the police in Northern Ireland uh, told me that there's a credible threat now from from Northern Ireland, and that's where the threat comes from. It's nothing to do with Iraq or Afghanistan or any of that. It's basically the the, the some of the operations that I was involved with in, in Northern Ireland were of a, a covert nature. I was uh, I call an undercover operator for two years in Derry, the second city in in the province. So show my face potentially puts then me and, and sort of my family at risk, but also the people that are still there. Because there's still some special branch guys who are still working. You know, it's uh, they've got mortgages to pay. Now. <laughs> I think they're going to work until they're about ninety, but but they're, they're, they're still operating. So therefore, it's just been sensible, really. We want to take you back to your childhood and your birth, and you were found in a plastic bag on the steps of the hospital. What happened, and who found you? Uh, uh, an ambulance crew. Um, literally, I was left at the A and literally about five hundred <laughs> meters away from yeah. where we are now, London Bridge, and um, I landed up in a um, uh, in a kid's home. Fascinating that it was a Harrods bag, though. Do you think your mother I know. was wealthy? I mean, I know. Why, why Harrods? I know. Why? Uh, my daughter constantly says, "Well, we've got to find out. Yeah. She might be like loaded." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all like. You know, well, it could have been a Woolies bag. You kind of just mean. I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it could be. It it's that green bag. bag. It's very distinctive. Yeah. yeah. So, how old were you when you were told that you'd been found in a plastic bag? Um, Harrods bag. That's seven or eight or something like that. And again, I had no idea what Harrods was. Anyway, no. it was just um, <laughs> just oh, okay. And do you have a theory about your real mother or? You know, where she was or who she was or what yeah, she was like. I, yeah, well, what also happened was that I've got quite significant First Nation American DNA. So one of the theories was, was maybe it was an abandoned uh, child, you know, an American soldier and the, the, the stigma of that, you know, young child, and then, and then left. So there was, that's as far as it really got purely from doing one of these DNA tests. Oh, so you did a genetic yeah, test? Yeah, 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 done a DNA test. And then... Um, that's as far as it got. And we sort of played with the idea, maybe a, an American sort of soldier. And have you got any genetic traits you think you've inherited from your parents? Well, if certainly with the with the the, the lack of a, a sort of functional amygdala, that that might have come from my dad because it that can jump genetically. So uh, there could have been that. And I think that certainly, you know, even you know my mother and and and, and even my wife now says, well, basically, I work on a three hour loop. You know, it's like the most important thing is like the next three hours and then it's gone and then you move on. So maybe I've got that from, you know, certainly one of my parents where it's just sort of, you know, do, do that. Well, that's done there. Don't worry about that. Get on with the next thing. Interesting. Have you ever tried to find either of them? Or no, no. And I, I it, it, Why not? Because it's really not bothered me. Mm. I think that the, the parents that I had, in fact, she used to be a cleaner. That's how it all works. She used to be the cleaner at the home. And uh, uh, it wouldn't happen now, but they used to take mine for weekends. They go, oh, I'll take that one home for the weekend, sort of thing. Okay. And that's how my older brother got, got adopted because he used to disappear for weekends, and cause, so he would stay there and eventually, you know, go through the system. And then um, my older brother 
years ago, years ago, maybe, I don't know, 30 years ago, when I was playing with the idea of uh, finding his parents purely because he had then a family and, you know, that whole thing of trying to... And it bizarrely, it really upset my dad as opposed to my mum. And I thought, well, I can't be bothered. It's, it's you know, they're the parents. Uh, and it, he came to the same conclusion. He's going, well, it's, you know, same parents, they're the ones who brought you up. So... So you're very it, fond of them? Yeah, absolutely, because they, you know... Re- I don't think now they would have been able to, to adopt kids, actually, you know, with, a, with a, you know, different requirements because they were sort of itinerant workers, you know, the, um, you know, the kids brought up uh, uh, during the war, so, you know, sort of didn't have much of an education, living on a housing estate. But it really didn't matter because it was, it was really good fun because he was, he was looked after, but you had freedom at the same time, um, which I really liked. And did you feel a sense of sort of stability or did it always feel transient? Did you always feel you were going to have to move on? Yeah, always felt it was moving on. But, the, but that, if you like, was the stability in the way that uh, you know, thought, well, well, I do this now. And then literally at 16, um, I'll be gone and I'll get a job. And obviously the, the jobs, certainly from uh, the sort of the state where we lived, was the docks were in the decline. So the job for life thing, so there was loads of parents that were losing their jobs and right. My dad was a window cleaner at the time, so he was he was he was sort of running around doing that rather than the dock. So those good jobs were going. Um so the other job was always getting a job in the print, but then I weren't part I didn't have a cousin in the chapter in the unions and so that wasn't gonna happen. So certainly for kids my age it was uh, London transport, um underground or, or driving a bus. Or there was a there was a thing called a panel beer. Nobody really knew what it was, but apparently panel beers earned loads of money. So I said, great, I'll do one of those jobs. Because we're on the council, I'll get a council flat, get a like a Mark II Cortina or something, and I cracked it. And that was it. And that's as, as far as it went, really. But it's rather fascinating. You used the phrase waiting room before. It's almost, yeah. as, as Alice was saying, it's almost like a transient home. Do you think that's because you had been abandoned by your parents at birth? So it, it could you be. You didn't feel yeah, it like could it was be. family? Yeah, it could be. It, it's um, and it's not something certainly at that well as as a kid and even as an adult really sort of sort of um, uh, uh, dwelled in it at all really because it, it was looking at it going well you know it is what it is and it's you know and it's great it's all right it's fine it's you know it's um, interestingly joining the army what what I, what I discovered was rather than the you know what you see on the, on the films and all the shouting and there's all that sort of stuff going on but actually there's quite a lot of pastoral care in a way that they want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're able to run and jump around and breathe and, you know, and as a, you know, the, the officer, the platoon commanders and all that. And so as a 16-year-old, we all let lay on our beds when I was in the, uh, the infantry junior leaders battalion and he, he would inspect our feet, make sure we're cutting our toenails properly. And he <laughs> taught us to cut our toenails properly. Right. So thinking, more like a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden there was that almost pastoral care, which you've never ex- uh, experienced before. And then the following morning they're all screaming and shouting at you <laughs> but then they're making sure that your feet are okay you know but did you have a lot of hugs and kisses then from your parents was it a sort of touchy feely family or was no. it very straight yeah it was, it was it was very straight and i think that that certainly work had a lot to do with it so um uh you know my mom, whether she was doing a clean or she would work at a you know a laundry mat a lot so always working at different jobs and then my dad would be doing you know one day he's a window cleaner and then he got a job as a plastic molder i didn't know what it meant really but it was it was the job so but that was a lot of night work so as he was coming in in the mornings i'd be going out to to school um and and my mum would be going out to work you know so it's really weird you know you're there but you're not and then obviously you know uh, uh, certainly at weekends 
being on the state you're just out all the time with your like you know gangs of kids and all that sort of stuff so uh, what was your personality like as a child were you very independent from an early age or yeah yeah far too independent i think that was part of the problem yeah very much and uh, and gobby as well certainly at school mm. can uh, you remember ever crying at all when you were no, a child no it it it's interesting it, certainly getting older at, at school again there was there was corporal punishment so um if you've got the cane and at primary school you just get cane over the hands so it was almost like a badge of honor so if you've got a cane on the hand um uh, uh the, the thing was to clearly not cry but then just a step forward to show <laughs> that it's not and then you get another one <laughs> like, so it was that that point of 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 not doing it anyway um, and you hated it, school didn't you i mean hated it and why was there no teacher that picked you up or saw anything no i just I, I couldn't see the point of being there um again because i had it all squared away I was going to get a job on London Transport or become this panel beater. We're on the council. I'm going to get a flat. Uh, it's all good. Um, so why do I need to go to school? I found it quite boring. Um, and even now, it's you know I, I, I go into schools now. Um, uh, you know, and talk about the value of sort of numeracy and literacy and all that sort of stuff. And even now, going into new schools, um, to me, there's still smell of sort of floor polish and and boiled cabbage. There's still that that smell. I just hated going to school. I, I couldn't see the. So did you bunk off a lot? Yeah, loads. Mm. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. And then did Too you much. get involved in crime? And yeah, well, you, unfortunately, yes, yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, so um, well, by fifteen, I just sort of just literally been school. So I, I got a job uh, working on lorries around North London, delivering uh, mixers to pubs. You know, the tonic waters and all that sort of stuff, and that was great. You know, this sort of I've something bizarre like six pound a day or something. It was great, it was huge. You know, it's that. So um, uh, and then obviously that the, you know that 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 job finished, and uh, basically it was all about just getting money. There would used to be groups of us who used to literally go into these these private sort of um you know blocks of six flats and just hit it and just smash and go in and grab whatever you can and and uh and then just get away with loads of stuff that didn't have a clue you know we nicked loads of checks that were for sort of i don't paid the gas bill or something but i thought or have them didn't know what to do with them i was thinking but yeah but it says money so therefore you know and land up you haven't got a clue what to do with them so uh do all that and then there was there was a couple of us who uh you know master criminals that we were uh, we went back to the same flats, and it, uh, and the, and the police were there. So at that time, there was a big, a big move against the ju- juvenile delinquency. I think it was called, and there was a system called the short sharp shock. So it was going in within the Borstal system, and the idea was that it would scare you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old kids into never reoffending again because of the the system, the the, the regime that it was, and. Uh, one of the organisations that were going into the the Walsall system was the military, um, and in, in this case, it was it was the it was the army, and the deal was that if you said you wanted to join, you'd go away three days to Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham, and you'd do a three day assessment. If you were given a place in the military, you didn't go back to Walsall. You went home, and because I was only uh, sixteen, my parents had to give permission, all that sort of stuff. But you went home and wait for your reporting date. So the big incentive was just to get out of Bolton. Mm. They didn't like it. So all of us, there was forty-seven. <laughs> the, the intake was called a sentence intake of forty-seven. All forty-seven of us went off to Sutton Coalfield. Yeah. Uh, we all thought we were going to be helicopter pilots. Cause that was the film. <laughs> Clearly, not going to be offered places as helicopter pilots. So um, I was offered a place in the infantry in a in a in a regiment called Green Jackets. You know and. Uh, and again, you you watched all these films of what you, what happens in the army and what you do. You've done all your tests, but I weren't really listening to it anyway because I thought, well, 
basically, I joined the army. I don't have to go back to, uh, to uh, the, the ball store. I had to go back, pick me cow, but that was a couple of weeks later. But I would go to the ball store. Don't have to go back there. And, you know, called it this, you only you do three years and you've cracked it and then you're out. So I thought, OK, you know, sound like a football team, Green Jackets, so I thought I'd do it. Uh, but it must it have it. also been a sense of achievement, because in a way you were chosen, weren't you? It must be the first time yeah. you'd actually passed something and yes. thought, you know I've made it, it, I've done it. It was the very first yeah. accreditation, actually. And, and, and certainly at my time at this, this Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion, and again, because I wasn't watching what was going on and listening and really taking notice, if you're joining up as a, as a, as a 16-year-old, boy soldier in this infantry uh, battalion, junior leaders battalion. They want six years out of you, not three years, because they want to regain their investment. Mm. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, they're ripping me off now because I've got to do six years. But there was a sense of achievement. You turn up and you, and straight away there's this talk of not, you know, me and you, and this is what you're doing. It's all about us. So there was that, if you like, that that family, it's all about us. So it's more sort of community and structure rather than Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very figures. much so. And of oh, course there's the shouting and the marching and all that sort of stuff. However, what it's all about is us. This is what we do. Every morning there was this routine. So as soon as you wake up, 6 o'clock in the morning, you get, you know, the company all decided to come in and shout, get, you know, and then everything's this mad rush until... Every morning at half past eight, room inspection. So, and you had to go to breakfast, whether you like it or not, because if you faint during the day, say you're doing drill and you faint, you haven't had breakfast. Well, that's your fault. It's not their fault. So uh, everybody has to go to breakfast. So and think, well, I could get away with breakfast because you can get all these other jobs done, but actually you can't. So there's this, you know, so for literally for a year, there was just this constant panic for two and a half hours every morning, thinking, <laughs> why are we doing this? You know, it's certainly in the, in the early days. But also the army taught you to read, didn't it? It did. Which that is, was the must big, have been huge. Yeah, big. It took about three months of this, what I call a bedding in period at this this infantry junior leaders battalion. And then we all, you know, shouted out the block at half eight to off to do your day's training. But we marched then to another part of this 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 camp. It's the Army Education Centre. And I, I didn't even know they had you know schools. So again I'm thinking, not only have I got to do six years instead of three years. But now they're ripping me off again. Like, I've, got to, I've got to go back to school. And also, I didn't have to shave till I was about you know, 18, 19. And you had to shave every morning. So I'm full of acne. So I'm cutting the tops of the zits off every morning. You know, thinking, you know, I did, you know, and now they want me to go to school. But going there, well, not only my life, but everybody there really just changed their life. It was, we, you know, got into the, the, the classrooms. And, uh, and by then, you know, we've been in the army three months. You know, you're shutting up. You just sit there, shut up. If you're ever in doubt in the army where to put stuff, it's always a top left-hand corner or the top left-hand pocket. You know, <laughs> so we belt and bury off top left-hand corner of the desk. You just sit there, and to us, sixteen-year-old sort of, you know, uh, uh, junior infantry soldiers, the world's oldest soldier came through the door, and now I know he was forty. But <laughs> next stage, he was like the world's oldest soldier, and he was a captain. And um, what he had done, he 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 was a junior leader himself many years ago. Uh, it served his 22 years and become a regimental sergeant major, which is quite a big deal within the, the was in the army, and then took a commission, but not in the infantry. Took a commission in the army education corps because he wanted to go back and give, in effect, 16 year old soldiers the same benefits he had, and 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 what he said changed changed their minds. He said, well, everybody outside of the camp, they'll think you're thick. Obviously, he said it a bit more sort of flowery, but. It, he says, they think you're all thick, but you're not thick, you're just uneducated. And the only reason you lot can't read or write is because you don't. So today it all changes. And, and, and that was it. Um, and it was then he explained the, the reason why we're, we're not flying helicopters, because of all of us at the 
reading ages of what well, was known as key, uh, uh, key stage two now, between nine and 11 year old. And it was, that, it was only sort of then where, because I just bluffed it beforehand, really, that I realised one of the reasons why, um, like all squaddies, you know, by the sun. And I couldn't really read it totally. You know, page three then was like not a lot of reading, so that was all right. <laughs> Turned it a sports page. And there were words that, you know, I really couldn't read. And so uh, I just used to make it up. And, and it was only then where this, guy, uh, this, this captain, this guy went, he went, it's all right. He says, the only reason you can't do it is because you don't. And now we do. You know, this is what we do. And it was literally, we was all given uh, a book from a, a primary school series called Janet and John. Yeah. Janet and John, it's a brother and sister, I know. There's a pictures yep. on one side. There's a little paragraph on the other page. That's for quite young children, though. Yes, yeah. yeah. Janet and John, book 10. That's right. literally what it was. So that was the first book you That read. was the first book. All of us had uh, a week to go for it and read it. And then we individually, privately, went up to the, the educator. Because education wasn't... Uh, day on day, it was a, like e- in fact evening school now because you had to do your training and then you went three times a week. You went to uh, yeah, education centre, whether you liked it or not. And um, at the end end of the week, we'd all gone through the, this this book with help, and and we had then went to see him, read the book. You know, John climbing a tree, the dog, that sort of stuff. Did you not think it was really babyish? No, no, because this is what we do. Yeah, this is what we do. Not at all. We thought, mm. okay. He said, no, this is what you're going to do. He says, once you get that, it's great. You know, so read the book. There's a vocabulary at the back. You had to um, uh, spell the vocabulary, explain what the words meant. And he went, right, close the book. And went, yeah, all right. Again, just wanted to get out. Yes, sir. And he said, right, remember the feeling you're going to get when you're back in a block. Um, you still live in these sort of 24-bed block room things. And say, uh, I've just read a book and it didn't kill me. And I went, yes, sir. Because <laughs> I just wanted to get out because it was done now. But he's absolutely right. Mm. Absolutely right. And, and how it, did it change your life? Because it must have done. I mean, you, you yes. ended up reading things no, like totally, Great Expectations, totally. didn't Because what, what, what basically what, what, what this, this educator said was, said, look, it's, it doesn't matter what you read, um, you know, book, magazine, poster, it doesn't matter. Every time you read, you get knowledge. And every time you get knowledge, you get power. And he says, what you'll be able to do with that power is to do the things you want to do, whether you're in the army or not, rather than people with more power telling you what to do. And I like that. I thought it was great. And I thought, okay, I get it. You know, because certainly in the in, in the army, you you can be the best soldier on the planet, but there's certain times of a career where you need academic qualifications, and and, and then you you do go back to school for a couple of months to get these these qualifications. Um, and so the there is an incentive because if you don't have those academic qualifications at different stages, you'll never get promoted. So there was this incentive number one of this this whole thing of of well if i'm going to do this army business i need to get educated and secondly it was this this whole thing about power to do the things that you want to do but it's also rather amazing that you you're an amazing best-selling writer and you hadn't read to you a book no. till you were 16 16 16 janet and john book 10 and then and then it got into there was a there was a um uh, a series of books um uh, second world war German books, the Sven Hassel sort of series, and I've got loads of young soldiers, so we're all reading them, and you know all that that sort of stuff, and then that's how I really got into it. Really, yeah, um, uh, it become like infectious. You know, it was like a snowball effect. You go, oh yeah, I can do this, and and everything that went on really was looking at things, going well. Again, going back to the educator, saying, well, if you don't know, go and ask somebody, because if you ask somebody who does know, they fall over themselves to tell you because you're showing interest. And I do, it, I do it even now. If you don't know, go and ask somebody. Who, know, who does know? And which book's been most relevant, do you think, to your life? I think there's not, there's not one book that I've probably read thinking, all right, that, that is me. But there's, there's um, what I get out of them is, is 
certainly if they're about character, you, you can pick out bits and pieces. For me now is, and again, I, I've sort of done this at an, uh, an older age, uh, Charles Dickens. I, what, what gets me about, about him is that he could be writing now and all he does is take away, I don't know, the coal fire and put central eating in. It's the same thing because it's exactly the same people that, you know, because yeah. he's writing about people, mm. not about the circumstance. And so all of a sudden, read Charles Dickens, you go, oh, I can identify with, with that person. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. horse and carriage. Well, you know, just bung a Tesla in. So are you exactly pipped, do you think? Are you pipping great expectations? Yes. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Andy McNabb. We'll be back after this. To enjoy more incredible stories from incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash past imperfect. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the SAS soldier turned author, Andy McNabb. Did you identify with stories about with orphans in? Because a lot of children's books have orphans or they've been abandoned by their parents. Do you know, that yeah, mean a lot to you? I found it, yeah, I, it, not really. It, it's because I think my, my experience was, was different because it tends to be that if, the, if there's a story about an orphan, it tends to be if, whether it's the loss and the sorrow of a loss or the fact or the, 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 the physical sort of implications of, of being abandoned and going through a system that was maybe abusing them. So I've, I've never really sort of looked at it in that way. The one, the one orphan identify with actually is that I started watching it last night, Queen, uh, Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah. We do both you, said that when we started you know, reading about you. We really? were like, God, that's so like the Queen's Last Gambit. Night. And then uh, we just watch it again, you know, like everybody else getting recommended to, to watch it. So uh, um, uh, uh, myself and my wife, we put it on, give it a go. And uh, and it, 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 she went, that's you. And I'm looking at it and I went, fans. oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. She's just getting on with it. You know? And very unemotional. Yeah, she's just getting on with it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, we're on episode two. We're gonna... So do you it's see, good. is fighting a bit like chess? So yeah. it's one step at a time. It's one step at a time, mm. you know, and it's and certainly the sort of military. It, it's that that whole thing of being in a fight isn't a science anyway. It's because you've got an opposition. So they, it's a bit like chess. You've got the set pieces, but actually it means nothing when you're there because yeah. you're you've got to see what the other side's doing. And Judy Dench's M in Skyfall told James Bond that orphans always make the best recruits. Why do you think that is? Do you know? Um, I think is that there's not too much of an a, an attachment, if you like, to real world, you know, to the real world, if you like. So, so the lack of attachment there. is almost an advantage. It, it's in, certainly, yeah. yeah. Again, the you know. It's, so why is that? Because you 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 can take risks. You have nothing to lose. I think it's a combination. You can take risks. There's well, there are things to lose because obviously when people then land up getting married and they have their own families. But I think that you're away. Certainly, special forces you're away seven eight months a year. You're away. So that that that, that whole sort of disconnect is a lot easier than if you've had a, a if you're like a good constant family life where you know every sunday everybody would come together sort of thing or every friday night you know that that sort of thing so in in that sense it's actually all right i didn't need mind. i went away for two years and i thought that oh, was all right it's okay it's like you know and and then you justify your family that you has go, gone with you mm, I suppose. well it's great because then you know the, all the basic things of well that pays the mortgage and that does all that sort of stuff without any 
concept of, well, actually, wife two years. So can you remember the first time you killed someone? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was um, 19. So I was in the in the Green Jackets in the infantry, and it was my second tour of Northern Ireland because at that time, the, the obviously, the war of choice of, of, of the military at that time was Northern Ireland, and so it was a second tour in a place called Keedy in South Armagh, and there was what we call an active service unit the provisional IRA had parked up, and they were um, going to get into a cattle truck that was all armoured up. What I used to do is drive past patrols, pop out the, uh, at, the, at the top and then fire at the, the patrols and then carry on. And the border was literally minutes away. So they would then cross into the south. So they were just getting ready for that and doing a PR stunt, basically, with the housing estate opposite, um, you know, showing their weapons and everyone's out sort of cheering. And literally, just literally, I was, I was leading this, what they call a little four-man patrol brick, around the corner and saw all these people in the housing estate and it was a Saturday night and that, that sort of was fairly common on a Saturday night because coaches used to take them into the south to bingo because it was safer there in Castle Blaney and then to come back so I thought, oh, they're waiting for the coaches. Then they started running and panicking. I looked and I'm literally about, sort of, I don't know, 10 metres away. There was this active service unit. So um, um, uh, I killed one and and, uh, uh, and there was two that was wounded. Um, what did it feel what like? Did it feel like? Yeah. Well, it was basically confusion. And then it was this whole thing of... The realization of, of of what was going on and, and what was happening, but then as it ran forward, there was people in the butcher shop who clearly were taking cover and right. So I just turned around and started firing at them because if anything's moving, I'm going to kill it. Sort of not in that I'm going to kill it, but thinking one minute they might just be shooting me, and then realizing that they're, they're like real people and think, all right, you've got to calm down now. And of course, it was that bizarreness where literally that was whatever it was six o'clock at night and then you're back in the in the patrol base and you're watching it on the 10 o'clock news mm. and it's then when i thought about it i thought i don't want to do that again because mm. i nearly got killed it was only actually when i got into special air service and and and, and got involved in uh this sort of first what called contacts you know firefights that, that sort of stuff where you got these really experienced special forces soldiers being in the regiment you know maybe you know, 10 12 15 years and afterwards, I go, ooh, didn't like that one. And all of a sudden, it was all right not to be like, you know, you're 19, you're all sort of macho about it. And then realise that it's all right. It's okay. You can't be worried about these things. It's all right because you might get shot, mm. you know. Uh, when which was goes the last back to... time then that you killed someone? And how old were you then? Um, 31. So how many people do you think you've killed over your I don't know. It's a, it's a weird, you know, again, ask it. I, don't, I think it's, it's not a, a good thing to sort of uh, uh, keep tally of, but... It's not as if, you know, people keep notches on their belts because the reality is that actually one day you might be somebody's notch on their belt mm. if they're in that way. Mm. So, um, and that's why they're, they're, they're not the enemy. Mm. Uh, they're called players. Call them players. They're not, even on formal sets of orders, you go, you know, instead of enemy forces, you go, right, the players are. You know, it's you almost like out. a video game then, isn't it, if it's players? All... It's players, it, yeah, and it, and it calms everything down, yeah. you know, um, in a way of, you know, the enemy, you know, and all, all that mm. sort of stuff. So the, the way that you do it is, is, you know, even during a conflict in Northern Ireland, they're known as players, not as terrorists. And do you have any sense of guilt about the person no. or their family? No. 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 I, I, it's it, not in a, in, a, in a sort of a, a, like, I don't know, wanton sort of macho way. And the, the fact is that a lot of operations, certainly special forces, you're there not to go and kill somebody. You're there to go and do something. So if there's people in the way of you doing it, because everything is about the mission statement, what you're doing. So nothing else matters apart from the mission statement, because otherwise you can easily get diverted. So if there's people trying to stop that, then you get involved in, in, a, in a contact um, or in the fight, in a firefight, whatever you want to call it. 
And in the heat of the moment, are you afraid of dying or do you have to put that aside no. completely? No, far from it. I don't know many people who are. I don't think I've ever experienced somebody who were afraid at that time because there's so much going on. And, and obviously you've got to remember that, that even, even sort of if you're looking at the training is pretty out, uh, outstanding, actually, compared with, I would say, all countries as well, even the length of training. I spent 10 years doing advisory with the MOD um, during the post-9-11 uh, wars, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so you go out, and again, going back to what we said before, you know, oh, this generation are rubbish. No, they're not. You know, they do exactly the same, and it's afterwards when they start thinking about it, exactly the same as I did at 19, you think, oh, they don't do that again, mm. you know. But they do, or they get out because they don't want to do it, you know, and... Uh, and there's not that many to get out. But you did have a very close shave, didn't you, back in the Bravo 2-0 operation in yes. 1991. Can, you, can we just take you back to that yeah. and what happened? Well, basically, we, we, we were sent to the northwest of Baghdad to try and find a fibre optic cable that was giving uh, the, some of the information to the Scud missile launchers that were, were firing into Israel. So, basically, the Iraqis want Israel to join the war and then the alliance we had with other Arab states would collapse because technically, you know, they're not going to fight alongside uh, Israel. So all of our operations were cancelled and everybody, or the whole regiment was sent out into the, in the deserts to try and find these these scuds. So our job then changed from a, uh, an operation that we were going to do in the southeast of Baghdad, changed to go to the northwest, try and find a fibre optic cable to cut it, destroy it. Um, what we didn't know, uh, and nobody knew actually, there was two armoured brigades of uh, Iraqis that were coming down from the border with Iran to get ready for the, the Allies' invasion of Kuwait. And uh, we were compromised. We were compromised by a young boy, a uh, goat herd, um, that went to the, the, the Iraqi mechanised uh, brigades that were coming down. And we couldn't get to what we call an emergency RV to get picked up by a helicopter. We had to go to what we call a war RV, which was Syria. It's normally the Americans or the British Embassy. On our way to, to get up to the border, it was, a, it was an eight-man patrol. Three were killed, uh, one escaped, and the other four, myself included, we were captured at different times around the Iraqi border, and three of us landed up in a in an interrogation centre in Baghdad. We were there for two and a bit weeks. So we were whipped and burned. I had some teeth that were pulled out. They were already smashed up when I got caught. I was, I was beaten up, always handcuffed, blindfolded, and we was all stripped. Goodness. There's a process that we went through, because you've still got a job to do when you're captured, because you have to give a window of opportunity for the the headquarters element to go, okay, we haven't heard from this call sign, Bravo 2-0, uh, for one, two, three, four days. Got to assume everybody's captured and everybody's said everything they know. So there's a, a way that you called operational security. You only need to know what you need to know before you go on the ground. Great. So this is what they know. What do we need to cancel or change? So your job is to give that window of opportunity. Because you've got mates out, you know, it's like it one of the squadrons and, you know, father to his two sons and, you know, all that sort of stuff goes on. So... We was in there for about two and a half weeks, um, the three of us, and then we were moved to Abu Ghraib prison, and we were there for about another three and a, a bit weeks. By then, Baghdad was getting bombed every single night. They're taking casualties, you know, their families are getting killed. We're taking hits in the compound and you know, all that sort of stuff going on. So there was a frustration thing that was going on. And then um, uh, and at one stage, uh, I had to eat my own uh, feces. And then the, the guy who was singing Queen songs, he loved Queen, um, was uh, uh, told me to lick it off, uh, oh. which I did. Oh. So, but, uh, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, it was, was um, uh, uh, contracted hepatitis afterwards. But the bizarre thing is, when I was in the green jackets, I'd done it for a bet on an exercise in Germany. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thing you what to do. You knew what to do, yeah, yeah. And you created this sort of imaginary world, didn't you? Can you describe yeah. what that was like? Yeah, it, it basically the part of 
conduct under training capture with um, uh, special forces is not only all the stuff you know the survival skills and you know how to move at night and all that sort of stuff it's listening to people's experiences um, who have been held against their will whether it's prisoners of war political prisoners kidnapped victims and so for me it was a, uh, an American phantom pilot in the US Navy who was six years in solitary confinement during the Vietnam War and every major bone in his body was broken during the interrogations and torture. He had to self-heal. So the guy was standing there, you know, no hair, no teeth. He had no no muscle mass on his buttocks. He was just beaten with frayed sort of bamboos over the years. Uh, and now I think he's, he's all into crystals and everything, lives in Hawaii now. But um, what he had done was build a house for his family. No idea how to build. He didn't have no, you know, so he just invented it. But he built a house for a family. And as the years went down, he was literally just redecorating, rewiring, doing that. And I thought, well, I think that's a good idea. So I didn't do the build thing. What what I'd done was where uh, my house was in Hereford, to get to the town centre, you used to walk through the park and go over the River Wye. There's a footbridge that goes over. So I used to do it with my daughter, that two-year operation I went on. Well, she was born during, uh, you know, during that time, so I hadn't seen much of her anyway. So I thought, right, that's the, if you like, the fantasy of walking over the bridge, Literally go into this cafe, cup of coffee and stick your bun and then come back. And it was sort of, it sort of changed into seasons and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But then you couldn't actually do it. So in a way, was the psychological torture as bad or worse than the physical torture? Do you know, no, I I thought it's it's the physical because because of listening to those people's experiences. You say, okay, I know a guy who had six years of this going on. I'm on week one, I'm on week two. Mm. So by then I'd been in the army, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, 14, 15 years or whatever it was. So I've been used to being wet, cold and hungry and, you know, all that stuff that goes on in garrison towns, you know, Saturday nights trying to sort of, you know, people fighting and you're trying to protect your kebab and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I think, well, you know, it's okay. So, like, if I'm still here in three years' time, I might start worrying about it. So it was, it was, it was a not optimistic view rather than a pessimistic view about anything, purely because of these people's experiences that I've met. And then just before your release, you were put through a mock execution. Yes. And you heard the click of the gun. Yeah. Did you feel at that moment that you were about to die? Or yeah, were yeah. Were you still in your fantasy world? No, no, it was it was an acceptance. Um, we thought we were going through the release process and then we all got put against the wall and we are all handcuffed anyway and blindfolded. And I was next to um, another, uh, an American jump jet pilot, another US Marine Corps uh, jump jet pilot had been shot down. So we're all put face up against the wall. Hear, heard all the weapons getting cocked, and it was quite interesting. There was a, you know, sort of different people. You know, so some people started to pray, and some people would, you know, start to cry. So you didn't feel frightened even then? No, because you've got no control. There's no control, and you go, okay. You know, not as if it's you know, like a French resistance fight. You know, defiant till the end sort of thing. You think, well, okay. So when you got out, what was the first thing you thought then? Was it I need to get back to my daughter, or? Well, yeah, it was, but. Interesting, the way the system works, that doesn't happen. So you go straight into debrief. Um, so we went back to Hereford. We, we picked up Bryce Norton when the aircraft landed. And we have our own helicopter sort of, uh, 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 squadron. So the helicopters picked us up, got us straight back to Hereford. But then we went into um, a debrief. And by then there was the different intelligence score guys and all those sort of people, immediate sort of people who need to know what's going on. Because also, the you know, we've got to remember that nobody really knew how many prisoners there were. So they were trying to then work out 
was there anybody that was that was unaccounted for and and again part of your conduct under capture is that you try and make contact with prisoners you try and recognize if you if you see somebody you try and recognize what they look like so it was the following day uh, when i went home and i saw my daughter and she's like oh hello because <laughs> by then um all of the, the the patrols next of kin you obviously we have next of kin forms people who are, who are informed like they're all told uh, that we were dead because I said, so I haven't heard anything for so long. So, well, naturally, we've got to assume that they're dead. So your uh, daughter thought you were dead? She didn't know. No, she was so young. She didn't have a clue. She went, oh, OK. You know, what are we going to do now? You know? And in fact, we've done what you all do. You land up at McDonald's, isn't it? So bizarrely, <laughs> it's sort of there. And then off to, off to McDonald's, get the silly hats on. And then the dentist. And then the dentist, yeah. And that, yeah, that went on for about, about six months. It's more about the nerve damage you know, rather than the dental stuff, actually. So the, um, obviously, if the nerves were, were severed because of the, 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 the you know, constantly being handcuffed. And um, uh, again, I didn't know until then, but you know, they take a while and you know, the growth and the regrowth and the tests and, all, and that was fine. And so it took about six months. Um, and then I, I served for another three years in the, in, the, in the regiment. So you've been tested, which showed that you actually, the part of your brain that controls that fight or flight yeah. instinct. Is it doesn't exist or it's underdeveloped? Can it's underdeveloped, yeah. The, the, what, the, the, yes, it, it the, the, the amygdala, it's about the size of a peanut or, or a walnut, you know. So basically, it, it's in the older part of the brain, you know, sort of the, you're going back to the caveman part of the brain, and it's that instant when people um, uh, there's a chemical reaction as well, you know. So all the blood, you know, uh, uh, pulls into the major organs, and that's why you know uh, it white with fear. Well, it's true because it's not fear. Basically, it's all the blood moving away from the skin. Vision narrows, the audio capability then is diminished because you're just looking at the problem straight ahead. So it's trying to contain it. People who, whose amygdala doesn't work do the total opposite. So everything slows down. The, the you know the, you're more essentially uh, aware of what's going on. So it was a couple of days of different um, experiences. There was the, the the interviews, if you like. You know, when's the last time you rec- you know you recognised your mother and you know all that that sort of uh, all that sort of stuff. And then the clinical uh, experiments, we were rigged up with sensors, and you're you're given different sort of stimulus to to see what you, the body would do. And there's a, there's a couple of sensors where where you cannot bluff it. You cannot bluff it because this is the way that we're, we're physically made up. Um, and the the uh, it was the, the experimental uh, department of experimental psychology, uh, University of Oxford. So the uh, the the, uh, the the doctor was doing it. He says, "Well, we can safely say you you're, you're quite high on the spectrum of uh, uh, psychopathy." I said, "Okay." He says, "So basically, you're a psychopath." I went, "Okay," <laughs> but a functioning psychopath. Okay. Um, and literally, I went home and, and and said to my wife, "Well, apparently, I'm a psychopath." And Literally, she went, yeah, what's new? <laughs> she did, like, she'd known for years. But, um, and then they wanted to do... So what does that yes. mean, though? Well, it, it means there's, there's different... Within the within that spectrum, you know, there's, it's less than 1% of the population, world population, of, of, of registered uh, within the, 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 if you like, the spectrum of psychopathy. We always think of it as, you know, Hannibal Lecter and Dexter or, or Bundy and all these sort of... Now, Bundy is, you know, he, yes, he is, he is a psychopath. But... Within that spectrum, there's other subsects. So the subsect I'm in is is a uh, a functioning, good functioning psychopath. But actually, functioning, particularly good functioning psychopaths, are allowed to, are, uh, can create what's called cold empathy. And again, you can see it, you can see the the neurons cutting pathways for it. And what it is is, I don't feel the 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 fact that you catch that. I don't care, but I know that you care because you're crying. And so I know I have to do something. So you know, I don't know, get a bunch of flowers because <laughs> i know you care yeah. you know it's just well and because and, we have trouble recognizing 
fear and 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 happiness and and sadness and all that a bit like or slightly like um uh, if you're on the autistic sort of spectrum so my wife's given me loads of well i've had them for years now emojis you know and it's literally she'll go when you see this face what you've got to do is make a cup of tea and buy some flowers or whatever and i go all right i get it so you learn so i've got the capability of learning whereas if you're looking at your you know you're looking at the dysfunctional ones you know there, there is that that problem where there's a major trauma so genetically they like it and then there's the major draw trauma whether it's physical or mental trauma or a combination of both and that's when it all starts to go wrong where you will then get the dysfunctional ones that are going in you know whether they become low-level criminals or you know serial rapists serial murders but that lack of empathy and fear made you a better soldier but has it made it very difficult with relationships very yeah i've been married five times yeah Mary, very 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 and are there ways that it's helped you in your writing career the fact that you think you need to have empathy to be able to create believable characters or are all your characters actually based on you? Clearly all the good bits. Whoever thinks of good bits in those characters are me. <laughs> but I think um, certainly the Nick Stone uh, uh, sort of franchise of, of books are, because they're in first-person sort of narrative anyway, and it's you know, just a lot easier to, to, to write about the things you know. So, And then everybody else, it's certainly the, you know, the supporting characters, if you like. They're, they're, they're amalgams of people that, that you've met over the years. So looking back to yourself at the age of five, being adopted, what would you say to yourself? Um, number one, education. And again, you know, go to schools, go to prisons, do the army bases, it just goes on, just going, that whole thing about education. Because basically I cocked up when I was young, thinking that I didn't need it. And uh, everybody, the way out of anything, I'm not going to say it is going to happen, but the way out of anything is having an education. You know, you're responsible for yourself, whether you're a six-year-old or whether you're a 96-year-old, you're responsible for yourself. So suck it all up, suck that education up, you know, and, and, and just get out there. And how do you think your character and your career have been informed by the fact that you don't really know where you come from? Because some people might find that traumatic, but actually for you, it almost seems to have been liberating. It is liberating, know. absolutely liberating. I think that the, the, the whole sort of family thing is starting from me with my daughter. And that's it. So then, you know, she's got a boyfriend, they've got a mortgage, they've got a cat, they're going to get married, so there'll be children, there'll be all that. So all of a sudden that thing is happening where there's going to be a lineage, if you like, starting from, from here. And I quite like that. That's, that's, yeah, it'd be quite good. It's going to cost a fortune, isn't it, in school fees? Not, I'll be paying <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, she won't. But it'll be good. And when was the last time you cried? Um, have you ever cried, really? No, I don't think I have. I don't, you know, even the Iraq stuff, there's no what reason to cry. What about your wedding or... I, well, yeah, that, yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? They've probably got bets on that. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I, I I felt really emotional at an opera. I did, over the last sort of, 10 years... <laughs> an got, opera? Opera, yeah, over the last 10 years. Which one? Cosy Fantuti, actually. So it's supposed to be, a f supposed to be fun, isn't it? Um, there's a mate who's really into German opera and all that. So I've done the, you know, the ring cycle and that three days of the ring cycle in Germany and all that. It's great. And so got into it in, in a way. So uh, it was Italian opera and it was that, you know, difference in it. And uh, wasn't, it wasn't the story. What it was was because it's so near and so, you know, literally something, you know, so now and again, you had really good sex. And sometimes, you know, you can feel the spit on your face, but, you know, everyone's going for it and all that. And I think it was just the effort of it all. I think this is really good. Amazing, absolutely amazing. I love it. Love it. I was fascinated by what you were saying about your daughter and almost that she now is creating a history going Yes. On. Do you feel that in a way she's 
she's she's the exception to the no empathy rule that you do have emotion and empathy for her in a way you don't for any other. Yeah, I, yeah, there, there's person. yeah, I suppose there is there is there's there's an emotion. Um, certainly an emotion for it um, and that whole thing of you know want to protect her make sure everything's alright and then sometimes going overboard and she tells me shut up she'll do it you know all that normal um, sort of stuff um, so you have got emotions yeah I think it's because it's to do with that commitment and that whole thing you do the commitment and then so that that whole thing is is if you like the, the, the absolute commitment is my wife and, and my daughter and that's it everything else doesn't really matter um, and again, because I'm on this three-hour loop, apparently, it, 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 and it really doesn't. It really doesn't matter. Andy McNabb, thank you very much Pleasure. for talking to us. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest, Andy McNabb. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to our previous episodes and make sure you never miss the next, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and from the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please go to the podcast description, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.